Hello everyone, welcome once again to A Reason for Hope. We're glad you're joining us. Hope you had a great day today and we're glad you've made some time to be with us on our show today. A Reason for Hope, in case you're not aware, is an hour-long live broadcast guided by your questions on the Bible. <coughs> not just questions on the Bible, but always answers from the Bible. So it could be a verse or passage of scripture that has confused you or something you're going through in your life, something you've, you're dealing with, maybe with your family, your friends, your workplace, you're in a in a pickle, I don't know, but you need some guidance. What does the Bible have to say? The Bible says a lot of things about a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> so we want to connect you with God's truth uh, through his word. That's what we're all about. So you can send your questions in through the multiple online platforms where we're streaming live. I'll be going over those in a moment as usual just to let you know your options there, ways that you can send us your question. My name is Dave Robson. I'm your host. I'll be receiving those questions as they come on in and throw them, throwing them out here to our guests, which today is, <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay. <laughs> Put my teeth back in. Yeah, slow down. Slow Pass the down. bow. <laughs> slow down. <laughs> slow down. I think Davey hit like a jump. <laughs> oh, I'm going to plug my uh, USB-C cable back in. With us today, Pastor Bo Willett, because it's Tuesday. Yes. So you are with us. It's Tuesday, yeah. It's yeah. wonderful to be here with everybody and glad to be on the show. Yeah, it's good to have you with us. Pastor yeah, thank you. Is the He's the assistant pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, where we're broadcasting from. More about that in a moment. Also, Pastor Sean Richards, of course, the regular, your favorite, and mine. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm well. You're well? That's good. Yeah, we've talked about how often we get sick around here, but the three of us... <laughs> Doing good right Doing now. Doing good right now. Doing good right now. Yeah, Adrian's right. under the weather, but not too bad. Just a light bug that he's fighting off. But well, thank you, Fatherhood Blues. Once one of the kids brings it home, it just has yeah, to run its course. That's right. Yeah, he has little kids, so that kind of happens. So thank you both for your time, for being yeah, here, and no problem. looking forward to your questions and you know the way. We never know where the show is going to go. Can just just guided by your questions. So, so there it is. Well, let me uh, let you know how. You can join us. I don't know what's wrong with me today. I'm not. <laughs> Reason for hope. Just read the screen. I'll just scroll through. You can just read it. Reason for hope is a live broadcast, as I say, Monday through Friday. We're with you 5 to 6 p.m. here in Tucson, Arizona, Mountain Standard Time. It's a ministry and outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson. If you are looking for somewhere to worship and get in the Word, you're more than welcome to come along and join us. On a Sunday morning, we have a 9 and 11 a.m. service and a Wednesday evening 6.30 p.m. service as well. We stream them to all these platforms as well, so if you want to check them out like that, or just come down in person, which is preferable. But we're a Calvary Chapel-affiliated church. We teach the Word verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. That's what you'll find with Calvary Chapels. Um, we put a lot of time to teaching the Word, giving the whole counsel of God. Of course, we worship with music and uh, have a lot of groups going on, support groups and Bible studies. So again, if you're in the Tucson area or you just want to catch one of our live streams, you're more than welcome to do that. CalvaryChristianFellowship.com. If you go to that Watch Live tab, that will take you to our live page. Or if you literally type ccftucson.online.church in your browser, that will take you to the same place. When we're offline, you see a countdown to our next event and a schedule of upcoming events. Uh, but we're live right now, so you'll see the video. You can sign in with the username and then send us your question uh, through that method, and I'll be right there with you. Do not fear. We're on Facebook as well, streaming live, facebook.com slash ccftucson, or just look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson on Facebook. Uh, don't forget to like and share. We'd appreciate that. But send your question in on the comments, and I will be receiving those loud and clear also. Lord willing. 
Uh, we have an app for your mobile device, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Look for that red background with the white Calvary Chapel Dove logo, and you can watch us on your mobile device. We have archive messages and upcoming events and all kinds of stuff on our app. It's pretty cool. Uh, we have a channel on Roku and Apple TV as well. If you go to your channel store, you can add us as a channel. Watch us on your big screen as well. We're on YouTube. A Reason for Hope is the channel name on YouTube. So look for A Reason for Hope on YouTube. It's a great place for archives. Anytime you've been live, it immediately archives right there on that live tab. So if you missed a show or you want to recap a question or ch you know check out one of our past services, it's all right there for you on YouTube as well. And of course, we're live there right now. We'd appreciate you'd like and subscribe and ring that bell if you'd like a notification when we're live as well our senior pastor here scott richards he's not with us today uh but he's uh with us every other day of the week he is on x formerly known as twitter scott r4h is his handle he posts things uh certainly things commentary on uh, world events as they pertain to end times biblical prophecy of course so much going on in the world but also other news articles and things if you'd like to follow along with him it's very informative as you know when he's here he often gives us an update of what's going on in the world so scott r4h scott richards on x used to be twitter in case you're still catching up on that like i am we're on rumble as well not live but we post video content there a reason for hope bible q a on rumble and our email address questions for hope at gmail.com questions for hope spelled out at gmail.com send us your question there as well uh, especially if you listen to us on the radio, you might want to keep that email address in mind because you are listening to the last show that we did pre-recorded. So at the end of our live broadcast, we upload it to the radio station and they play it the next day. So you're kind of a day behind there, but all those other channels, we are live. But questionsforhope at gmail.com, of course, you can use that email address anytime for your questions as well. So please do send your question in as long as it's an honest and sincere question, as long as you know that. We are going to dig into the Bible to find the answers. Then you are more than welcome to send any question you have. We have questions ranging from, you know, what's the, what does this word mean in the original language to like, how do I cope with parenting or, you know, anything in between. And I, I just want to say that I'm not uh, a scholar. Uh, I work as an administrator <laughs> and, and I need a lot of grace for that as well. Oh, yes. Yes. But and I you, just want to say beans. <laughs> but you love the word. Yes, and I, I do. Know you've been a mentor of mine for many years as well. So don't sell yourself short. Either. <laughs> we have Sean, you know, if all else fails, we just switch to Sean <laughs> and then we look each other like ah, i don't know what's <laughs> that's what we do but sure would you like to pray today why don't we yeah. do that before we go any further dad thank you that we have the chance to be here we want to invite your spirit to give us the grace we need to not only answer with wisdom and knowledge but also with the kind of heart that you would communicate in the day we're looking forward to when you can communicate your word directly to us allow this to suffice to equip your body by your spirit to minister to your bride and ultimately build each other up in edification, exhortation, and comfort, as all gifts of prophecy are meant to do. Allow us to not only speak simply, but also clearly and accurately, and in a way where people are encouraged and built up and given the equipment they need to honor you in their lives as well. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Mm -hmm. Amen. 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 Thanks, Sean. And it's true. Well, before I, I jump on those platforms and check what questions mm -hmm. we have coming in, and again, please do send in your questions. Um, I thought it would be good to discuss this kind of simple but profound question. What is the best way to study the Bible? Obviously for people, I mean, you just kind of mentioned it and I'm like that as well, just in awe of, 
you guys, the guests that we have that just navigate the word like the back of their hand, mm -hmm. for someone that uh, wants to grow in their knowledge of the word, um, what are some, some ways or the best way to study the Bible, to um, understand the Bible, to grow in the knowledge of it? Any thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah, the best hurdle I think most people get over in spiritual matters is thinking that you would treat it any differently than you would an academic study or even a hobby. When we want to understand facts, figures, and events of that are biblically relevant, we're talking about, first of all, a collection of 66 books written by 40 different authors, written over 1,500 years of human history, all with the same consistent message on some of the most controversial subjects known to man. So the good news is one of the problems in navigating a volume of books has been dealt away with. We don't have to worry about conflict between the novels. I uh, followed some science fiction series that had some conflict between the authors, and it made it difficult but manageable. When we're reading a section of scripture, I think the best thing to do, and this has been my personal benefit, you can take it for what it's worth, is to first understand what is being read, the genre of the text. Is it history, poetry, or prophecy? And then within that, is there some room to ask in the context? The genre of this is telling me to apply it literally, to understand it literally, or to just appreciate it as far as the picture that's being painted. For example, in Proverbs, I uh, read that the eyes of the Lord are in every place looking for uh, those who may honor him. Now, I don't take that to mean that God's a giant eyeball monster or that all of the universe is composed of this, you know, Hermaeus Moro thing going on here. I understand that in the book of Proverbs, it's making a poetic description of eyes, the things we used to see, that it's God's all-knowing. That's literal doctrine but it's in a poetic context. And again, once I have the genre down, I ask, what am I reading? I also ask, what else was said on this topic? If I come to a conclusion, which is allowed, I avoid trouble by saying, okay, if this is true, what else in the Bible would say something either similar to this or the opposite of this? And then I decide, well, if I'm testing this, am I in the right or did I miss something along the way? double-check your work. Don't ask what I'm reading, but also what else is said on this topic. And then lastly, I think if you understand the audience that's being spoken to, that can speak volumes. If you're reading a statement by Jesus that was said to his enemies, as opposed to his followers, that might suggest maybe tones of sarcasm, as opposed to tones of instruction. It can go on and on. But as long as you understand the three basic principles of literature, context, context, and context, that's what's ultimately going to carry the day. If you haven't uh, the slightest where to start with the Bible, then the best place to go is the beginning. But if you aren't familiar with Hebrew literature, you're intimidated by all the objections that you'll experience, we always encourage people, Christianity, of course, centered around Christ, the most direct and plain presentation of Jesus' character would be either in Matthew or in John. But take your pick. I always recommend people to go to First Thessalonians because A, it's shorter, and B, it was intended to be spoken to to an audience that didn't have a lot of background. Mm. They had a couple weeks with the Apostle Paul before they ran him out of town, and the church was left behind going, 
what do we do with what you told us? And he just gives them a quick recap, reminds them what's important, and tells them what the Christian life is all about. It's yeah. very practical. That's a good point. If you're more of the philosophical bent, maybe Romans, but we always understand who Jesus is, always understand in light of Scripture. It's compiled for us for a reason. Understand that the presentation and propaganda of it uh, from those who are either hostile to it or using it for ulterior motives ought to be checked out just as much as we do, and that the Spirit can lead you into all truth, and you can have confidence in that. But the fact that you came to a conclusion doesn't mean it's definitive. Consider the genre, consider the author, consider the audience. I think you'll be just fine. Hmm. What'd you think, Bo? Um, I was going to just give two passages of Scripture. One of them is in the book of Nehemiah, um, and it's a great chapter, chapter 8. And this talks about the reading of the law, um, and it talks about Ezra going up on a platform, and he read from the book of the law in verse 8, uh, making it clear and giving the meaning. That word, making it clear, could be uh, translating it, hmm. uh, letting them know what it actually says. Yeah. And, uh, and it's neat because you read the chapter, and people understand finally what God's Word says, and they, he makes it clear, and they start weeping, and Nehemiah has to say, hey, man, you know, the joy of the Lord is our strength. You know, hmm. don't weep, you know. But uh, another passage that goes along with this that's in the New Testament that I saw as a cross-reference is uh, Ephesians chapter 4, where it talks about uh, Jesus gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. And it says, to prepare God's people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. And it goes on. And that's Ephesians chapter 4. And verse I read from verse 11 on. Um, so I, I see two things. Our one main point there, and that is uh, sometimes it's great to have uh, all the things we have, the people that make things more clear to us. Because right. um, I certainly don't have everything down. Yeah. Um, and uh, and probably neither do you out there. <laughs> and, but it's nice to listen to other people yeah. and, you know, how they can maybe pull out a Greek word or a Hebrew word right. or a contextual uh, truth mm -hmm. uh, of a passage that I, we just don't know. Right. And so um, I, I just see that's important. You yeah. got Ezra, and you got uh, these pastor teachers in the New Testament that are to help us. Yeah, and know? there's that balance, because I know in, in Catholicism, there's not a real push for people to read, study the Bible on their own, am I right in saying well, that? Well, there's, and... there's been centuries of that. Yeah, yeah. right. And, and it varies from individual groups and parishes. Some, well-intended though they may be, have a regard and a respect and a reverence for God's Word in saying that I'm not called to be a pastor or teacher, yep. good, Therefore, I don't want to mishandle God's Word. Good. Therefore, I shouldn't touch it. I should leave it in the hands of the experts, and they'll communicate it to me. That's where we would disagree. Yeah. The caution or concern people have of coming into wrong conclusions is an unwillingness to double-check their work, mm -hmm. and that's the fault of the reader, not the user. Yeah, I yeah. think back in the day, too, uh, you know, there was a lot of illiteracy and, um, and sometimes when you have a society that's illiterate, you have to trust the leadership, mm. right? Right. And, uh, and so that's always, that's always kind of happening in our world, right? There are those that maybe know a little more, and, uh, and then some of us don't know as much. Right. And so, uh, uh, but it also can be uh, an abuse of power in, in that true. kind of situation as well. So right. 
Um, yeah, then you have cults where it's yeah. just, yeah. Or people telling you what it says when it doesn't say that or yeah. something like that. Yeah, and I know we, when, if somebody comes to the church and they want to serve, which often people come in guns blazing, yeah. we always say just hang, you know, just hang out for six months or whatever. And one of the main things is make sure you jiving with the teaching, you know, make sure that you agree, you know, with what's being taught. Because if you get involved in the ministry, then suddenly, like, I don't agree with what's being told. Then right. <laughs> it's important. It's a bit of a problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's right. Well, great. Well, thank you for your thoughts on that. I hope that's encouraging to you out there. So wherever you're at in your biblical knowledge or walk with God to, to follow those things, yeah. read it for yourself, but also get into a place where it's taught and um, you could be mentored um, mm. many ways. That's great. Uh, question from Dan. Is it possible to speak... Uh, write and pray in tongues in a language no one on the planet knows. So are tongues always known languages? Yes. You know, or is or are they sometimes or only a heavenly language that no one's ever heard of? Well, the wiggle room that cult groups would go to to justify the, well, it's an unknown language. They'd reference 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3, and say, though I speak with the tongues of men, and of angels, right. and then they'll stop two-thirds of the way through a verse that wasn't even making that kind of point and say that, see, there are tongues of angels that we can speak, and since angels aren't humans but above humans, this is my heavenly language, and then you ask them, what is it, and it's just them naming random fruits. That's a quote, by the way. So when we're <laughs> talking to people about their quote-unquote spiritual gifts, they need to have spiritual definitions, and by that I mean biblical definitions. The use and the testing of the gift of tongues is laid out for us very, very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We just plainly read it, and hopefully that would be enough, but for the sake of time and the audience, there's two audiences that tongues can have, and two uses that we see in Scripture, mainly the book of Acts, where tongues was appropriately used. And if someone is exercising tongues in an other-than-biblical way, or in a way, claiming it's the gift of tongues, but never something that was modeled or defined in Scripture plainly, then you have someone who's either lying or misled. They are following a teaching that's encouraging them to do something the Bible doesn't teach, and that's bad. So the first audience of a gift of tongues, or any spiritual gift for that matter, but this one in particular, is that of your fellow believers. And in order for that to be legitimate, it also has to include another spiritual gift, which is the gift of interpretation, which is specified in more detail in 1 Corinthians 12. That whole section is on spiritual gifts. So if there's a gift of interpretation and a gift of tongues, what then does that look like? Well, we see it modeled in the book of Acts chapter 2, where after the Holy Spirit's poured out on the church at Pentecost, they start speaking in tongues after flames of fire shooting out and the dramatic nature therein. But all that being said, the audience of those um, uh, demonstrations of the Holy Spirit's power, of that power being demonstrated, was they understood their languages and even their dialects. 
these were known languages to the audience, not just to their fellow believers, but to non-believers. And that would be a second example. Mm -hmm. But speaking in tongues to fellow believers would be another instance where Paul actually downplays in 1 Corinthians 14, that I speak in tongues more with you all, but if you are speaking in tongues, you're speaking to God and not to man. That would be an appropriate instance of the exercise of tongues without a translator, but understand what is the interpretation. It's to God. So who would know? Who would be able to interact with this tongues of angels, even if that was a legitimate interpretation, which it isn't? Which it isn't, excuse me. So that's the point that's being emphasized. If you have an audience of believers in the church proper, it's going to have an interpretation. Otherwise, Paul says, let them be silent. If, on the other hand, you do have an example of someone who's a non-believer hearing the gift of tongues and they don't have an interpretation, the conclusion is that it's going to be meaningless. They're going to think that you're all mad. But more often than not, and we have direct not only practical testimonies but also biblical instances of this, they're going to understand, a la Acts 2, what's being said. The gift of tongues serves a purpose and it's to be understood by, uh, to the intended audience. So if, in this case, we're speaking to non-believers, they'll understand it. If we're speaking to fellow believers, another believer will come along so that it will be understood. If the audience is God and God alone, he'll understand it. But that's not something that's going to take precedent or authority in the church. That's why he says the better gift here is prophecy, because that way, what? understanding is taking place. Right. So when it comes to, oh, I have this gift of tongues and it's being demonstrated, first of all, with my tongue, I don't know how that would translate to gift of writing, unless they're doing some occultic practice called automated writing, where they get like possessed by something and then write out something they're not even aware of. Mm. No example of that in scripture. Right. I mean, you could try to write something down with your tongue, but it's going to be all weird and moist and you probably won't be able to pronounce a few words afterwards. It's it's just going to be a mess. But if, on the other hand, we're giving, what was this third example? Writing, speaking, and uh, strange languages they had never seen. Right. Oh, and pray. Yeah, pray, yeah. Prayer in tongues. That's the just communicating to God. But if you're going to exercise a spiritual gift, make sure that it's in a biblical framework. Just like if you're going to teach something about God, make sure that it's consistent with a biblical framework. Mm -hmm. If you're going to minister to somebody, exercise a gift of hospitality or administration, you do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. You're not cheating. You're not you know, skimming money off for yourself. You're acting as if Jesus would. It's the same misrepresentation or the same proper execution. It is tested by the Bible. Now, we see a lot of people abusing the gift of tongue, saying that, well, if your salvation is going to be legitimate, you have to speak in tongues, and so they'll just fake it in order to appease this self-imposed doctrine. Again, that's not biblical. There are instances of people who exercise that spiritual gift as a sign to those around them, but not for its own sake. And if we ask the purpose for it, in passages, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, where we're given a definition, description, and application of it, it's always for understanding. It's always for interpretation. It's always for the building up of the knowledge and encouragement of the body of Christ. So if that's then the case, 
what's its proper use. It will be in known languages because it has to be given an interpretation. The interpretation is legitimate because it's not someone just pulling hot air out of the air. And on it goes. That is where we draw the line. Mm -hmm. People say, well, this is my prayer language. That's like someone saying, well, this is my Bible. No, there's the Bible, and I think that we can all come under its authority. But if you are making up rules as you go along, I'm sorry, but I don't find much interest in joining your cult. Right. Yeah. Any thoughts on that, Bob? Um, you know, there's there's a lot with uh, uh, I mean, I've studied First Corinthians 14. Um, I've always saw it as uh, Paul giving uh, guidance to. Uh, your personal, like a, a person, uh, individual, and then and then he talks about the assembly, mm. how the gifts should be done in the assembly. Right. Um, I do agree that tongues in the assembly, when you see an assembly situation, the emphasis is obviously on linguistics. It's on known language. Um, we already went through the book of Acts, and then you see... Uh, the latter part of first uh, first Corinthians chapter 14 where Paul is talking about what's happening within the assembly um, one thing that I find interesting is verse 2 where it says for anyone who speaks in a tongue or you know uh, or another language it could be another language um, it says does not speak to men but to God indeed no one understands him Right? No yeah. one no one understands what he's saying. And so you get the idea. Uh, what I see there is like, uh, is there this gift of a personal prayer where you're praying? I know uh, Sean used the word prayer language, where no one understands uh, what you're saying. And it says he utters mysteries with his spirit. And then it says, but everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort, but he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. Mm. So there is a personal edification with this kind of prayer that's going on in this language. Mm. Um, certainly some people have, uh, there's been, a, I guess you could say, an abuse of that, uh, and we all are very familiar with that. Mm. Um, am I convinced that Th this personal one is a language uh, on the earth. It's a dialect that's already on the earth. I don't know. I, I, I'm not quite sure. I don't see a specific on that. I see it's for sure in the assembly, that the assembly tongues right. is a dialect. Yeah. It's, it's something where there's an interpreter, understands the language. It seems to me like that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I could even get into uh, Isaiah 28, talk <coughs> a little bit about Paul's quote there in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, but it would probably lead us. But he, uh, the whole point is, it seems like Isaiah 28, which Paul is quoting when he's talking about tongues in the assembly context, has to do with another language. Right. It's actually a real language. Yeah. Um, and so that's the only thing I would say that, uh, you know, that I don't, I, I, I don't know about this, what's being spoken of in verse 2, verse 3, and verse 4. Right. You know, because it is a, a language that edifies yourself. Yeah. You know, no one uh, no one understands it. Yeah. And is the subject of tongues, is it is it always speaking the the mysteries of God? Is it always that subject? 
Well, it seems like it's definitely directed towards God. Towards God, yeah. Yeah. It's like a a praise, a worship kind of language. Yeah. Rather than speaking tongues over you, God's saying, Bo needs to da-da-da-da-da. Right. No example of that biblically. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 So I I maybe have a little nuanced take on that, but um, that's something I'm willing to, you know, look into some more, you know, for for the listener. And it's a great question. And... Uh, I just love that they're pouring into the Word of God and yeah. really looking into that that question. Absolutely, Dan. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate your question. Hope that helps you out with that. Thank you for giving us that question to discuss today. A question from Yari. Do you agree with scholars who say David approached Saul in the cave with murderous intent or he would have actually fought against Israel? So maybe you can explain um, the scene. and It's a very, very simple mistake. Uh, When we're talking about quote-unquote scholars, we're talking about people that have studied a lot in this area, but like Bo mentioned earlier, people in positions of power almost have a undying need to abuse it if they don't have the Holy Spirit restraining them. So when we're talking about this issue, the reason why they come to this conclusion is because in 1 Samuel 24 and verse 4, the same language, the Hebrew word here is uh, wayacham. Um, he arose to cut off a corner of Saul's garment. It's the same word that's used when Cain, for instance, in Genesis 4, 8, rose up against his brother Abel or um, in Genesis 19:1, where we see in a more neutral sense, Abraham, or a lot, excuse me, rose up to meet the angels that greeted him. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of different uses for this word. It just means to interact with somebody. We see in the context, David just cut off a corner of Saul's robe. That's what he rose up to do. Now, how do we know that was all he intended from the exchange? Well, let's read the whole account says in verse 3 of 1 Samuel 24, So he came to the sheepfolds that Saul by the road, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. He was going to use the bathroom. David and his men were staying in the recesses of that cave. Then the men of David said to him, This is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as seem good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him, because he intended to murder him? No, because he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. That's all that bothered him, that he even touched the robe of God's anointed, which you're going to see in a second. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. David said for the second time in the current paragraph, O Lord, my king, when Saul saw him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who would say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave, and someone urged me to kill you. Notice, not me, someone urged me. But my eye spared you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. So not once, but twice in the very same chapter, David states his intentions and goes on to live in light of that fact. Saul tries to kill David on one more occasion throughout their lifetime. He's smart enough not to buy the peace treaty that follows from this exchange and remains in the wilderness of Engedi. But the point that's being made in this passage is what? David demonstrates his intentions Mm. once. 
he states his intentions twice. But because some guys with uh, letters before and after their name say that a word can be used in this sense, in a violent sense somewhere else, and in a not violent sense somewhere else in the same book, we just don't, you know what's being talked about here. You see it, he describes it, he acts it out, he tells you, and even going into Second Samuel, he continues to emphasize this, I wish no ill will against Saul. Mm. When he found out that an Amalekite claimed to have cut him uh, to pieces after he had failed to kill himself properly so he wouldn't be abused by the Philistines, what did David do? He had the Amalekite executed. Mm. He said, you're not to lay a hand against God's anointed. So during, after, and long after, he explains his intentions. During and after, he demonstrates his intentions. But a scholar says one word could be used in a violent sense and in a nonviolent sense. So we don't know. I think we do. It's always intimidating whenever you talk to someone who's like smart, you know, and who's got like a lot of a lot of. Um, especially as someone who's uh, been in academia a long period of time, or even just someone who has that kind of academic brain, you know, especially yeah. if they have like letters after their name, you know, um, you're always just like, wow, you know, and, yeah. um, and they write books or uh, about these subjects. And, uh, you know, sometimes all we can do, uh, I think, in our understanding of the Bible is, uh, it, you know, if the plain sense makes sense, you know, seek no other sense, right. right? Sometimes the best thing to do is just to look at the context, see what it says, uh, read, you know, the narrative, you mm. know, so don't just read that one chapter, you yeah. know, but read the whole narrative of David, see if there is familiar uh, areas, mm. you know, where, uh, as Sean's pointing out, um, you know, a, a collective use uh, of a word within uh, a particular context. Yeah of a narrative, a person's life right. in the Bible. But uh, that'll help us because, yeah, it can be intimidating when you read. There's so many books out there that you can read that uh, totally go against maybe what seems so plain. Right. And uh, it can throw us all off. Yeah, it seems to make sense. And you're like, well, I guess I'm just seeing this wrong or whatever. But so yeah, I've seen more disservice done to the body of Christ and their plain understanding of Scripture than the opinions of scholars, because right. in that world, to their credit, it's publish or perish. They always have yep. to keep producing new material, and in this case, it's something that wasn't uh, meaningful. Yeah, Oftentimes it isn't, but that's the yeah. point. So don't think scholar settles anything. Right, and Yari did say scholars in his question, too. Yeah, quote, yeah quote, he knows. Scholars. He's, a, he's Sorry, already yeah. up on He's it, man. Scholars, <laughs> yeah. So Yari, thank you for your yeah, question. Yeah, thanks, Yari. Appreciate that. Um, question from uh, Guy or G, uh, either way, uh, asking why was the fruit the first temptation? Why was the first temptation the fruit? Why not just, you know, don't, murder Adam, don't murder Eve, don't do this or the other. What's, what was the significance of having the fruit be the first temptation that man faced? And what did that represent, maybe? Well, what it represented is given to us in the text. It would be this as the object of you saying yes or no to me. But as far as why God chose fruit in particular, was he like trying to do a dig at vegetarians or something? I don't know. The point was, the passage notes in Genesis chapter 2, that mankind as a moral agent would be able to say yes or no to something, not just a concept, not just an action, but specifically there would be an object 
in contrast to something else. Now, the tree of life also has fruit. I, maybe that's what the questioner's getting at. But when we're, ta- we're told about this tree of life, it's a representation of our relationship with God. We see it reintroduced to mankind in, Gen- in Revelation 22, where its fruit will be new every month, and that's how we're going to tell time in the new creation, by the way. Uh, when we're talking about the concerns that people have surrounding, oh, well, it was an apple, and so apples are evil. Apples, the you know forbidden fruit and all that stuff. No, it's got some natural sugars in it, so you probably don't want to do too much, but the point of emphasis on that was you have a fruit that represents me because you live in a garden, and that's something that you partake of regularly. It would be something that would be a la 1 John chapter 2. Every single area of temptation is going to involve one of three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. We mm-hmm. see in Genesis 3 that that's what the serpent drew attention to. It was pleasant to the eye, it looked delicious, and it had the power to make one wise, as the serpent misleadingly advertised. But the point was that it was, in any form of temptation, that certain object. When we have our own areas of temptation, and Bo, you can probably provide more on this uh, topic than I can, when we're discussing the issues that people have, it's A, not always going to be the same thing, but ironically enough, the inclinations people have tends to be kind of more the same, just with a different noun <laughs> associated with it, yeah, yeah. because it's always the same verb. It's there's what God wants me to do, and then there's not. And that's just something that we're naturally bent towards, the sinful nature. We'll, we'll get more into that in a second. But um, as, the, as far as the significance of the fruit, I think there's an important contrast into the tree of life representing our relationship with God, and that human beings as moral agents, as I said, would be able to have a decision not only given, mm. but respected in right. saying no to that. And it was also represented by something equally as appealing. God's not sabotaging or stacking the deck in his favor apart from himself, mm. and that's the point. Now, when it comes to our own temptations, when people say, well, you know, I may struggle with lying or gossip or gambling, but I'm not like that person that overeats or that goes with, you know, girls and stuff like that. What is the real, well, pan this off to you, what is mm-hmm. the real issue people have in their hearts when it comes to our sinful nature? Is it because it's a fruit? But it's because it is gambling, it is because it is pornography, or is it because we want something other than God? We yeah, think that that yeah, is that's the answer. It. That's it. We, we, there's one thing that's true, and that is we are fallen. <laughs> you know, we're always, we're always, that's the word iniquity, right? To bend. Yeah. It's always, we're always bending. You know, I, I think what's interesting is the Proverbs say the word of God is a tree of life. Um, and it's interesting, I, I find that interesting in this question, because why did God, uh, why was it, you know, like a fruit tree, Yeah. you know? It's interesting that the Proverbs, which are talking about wisdom and, and, and using wisdom as, and, and, and as a beautiful thing, it's, a ma- it's, it's something to want and desire more than anything and to wear as a necklace, and it has all these analogies mm. about wisdom right. and, and to help us understand how important it is to have the wisdom of God. And I love that. So it says the word of God is a tree of life. Mm. You know, something, uh, do I see God's word as 
alluring, as awesome. You know, did Eve see, you know, she had an object, as Sean was mentioning, uh, that was alluring, and but did they see God's word as allure, awesome, right. you know, alluring, that that was the tree, that was the tree of life, the, taking hold of God's word, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, in order to have, I guess, the... <laughs> I guess in order to have that choice, you know, something would have to be presented where a decision would have to be made, right? right? Whether you're going to go that way or whether you're going to go this way. Yeah. What are you going to find most valuable? Yeah. You know, and all of us are doing that, I guess. We all are looking at things that look good, look like mm-hmm. a fruit, you know, uh, in the analogy. Yep. And we're making a decision on which way to go. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. and what we're gonna, who we're gonna listen to, what we're gonna do in our lives, right. things like that. Yeah, what drives us along. Yeah, yeah. There's well, some. Go ahead. Yeah, Take I was over. just gonna say to you know, uh, God of course is concerned with His glory and shining His glory is by seeing His word as a tree of life, and most valuable yeah. than anything. Yeah, amen to that. There's a question from Mike. We I think we covered it before. But I wanted to ask it again when you were here, Bo, and I don't think we did that. But even if we did, I think it's a great question. <laughs> but yeah. um, Mike was asking, if there's a sin you keep wanting to do, um, what is the best course of action? Like how to overcome uh, sinful you know, behavior, sinful habit, something. And I wanted to bring it up because I know you've been very much involved in yeah. support groups for, for yeah, men I, and then for you know, women as well. First and, of all, I always love the statement that you know, repeated, repetitive sin you know, habitual sin. That's yeah. the big word, habitual. Right. And my question is always what? Isn't all sin kind of habitual? Like, aren't you habitually sinning like every day? Yeah. Like when, you, you know, you sin. But the, and, you know, I think the Bible tells us in First John chapter 1, you know, the first thing is that, uh, uh, um, that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, verse 7, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of, his son purifies us from all sin. And it, and it says also in this section that uh, we are to confess our sins, right, to God. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so this First John chapter 1 passage is a great passage that says, hey, if there's a sin that continually gets at you, you know, it can be you know, a super prideful heart that you see continually in your life. It could be uh, an apathetic heart. It could be a lustful heart. It could be greed, uh, envy. Um, There's just a lot of things that could creep up. Um, um, You have to remember that whatever the outward thing is, you notice I talked a lot about the issues of the heart, not so much the outward manifestation of those things because sometimes we just go hey how do i stop doing this but really there's a lot of things going on in the human heart but first thing is confess it to the lord you know find out what it is that you are dealing with you know where's your lustful inclinations taking you confess Mm -hmm. that to the lord Uh, keep confessing lord this isn't good you know talk to the lord about it the next thing is find people that love the Lord that you can get with and and be encouraged, go over Bible study, um, learn from, mm-hmm. uh, grow with, you know, this that specific area. Yeah. Uh, so if it is a specific area, then, 
you know, you might want to go to something where yeah. you can get the help. It's so powerful yeah. being around people that struggle because one of the yeah. the voices of sin is like you're on your own, you're the only no. one, you filthy animal, or whatever it is, <laughs> you right. know, like, and, and to be around people that struggle the same is, yeah, man, so powerful. Which is really hard, too, when it comes to especially um, kind of sins that are, demonized in our culture meaning they're really yeah. looked at as horrible you know the real bad ones uh that can be really tough because then you through admission you know or when you walk into a, a room that's kind of a group uh setting you you already are admitting the problem right you're already kind of openly publicly saying right. hey this is my issue no, I'm just here to observe. Right, right. I'm just, yeah, I heard this was a good Bible study. <laughs> yeah. you know? I heard they the have wrong... free donuts. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, that's right. I'm in the wrong place. Yep. So definitely, you know, get with the, the body of Christ, people that are in Jesus that you can talk to about this specific issue. Yeah. Um, so those two things, you know, start confessing it to the Lord, um, that specific area, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, you know, do some thinking on that and kind of what's behind it all, and then get with people that you can talk with regularly, yep. you know, about it, yep. you know. And can you share some of, because um, we have groups here, you have one tonight. Yeah, I have one tonight that's just for those men that struggle with sexual immorality. That's the group that we do tonight at 6 o'clock p.m. at Calvary Christian Fellowship. Um, and But we've done all kinds of groups, uh, eating groups, um, alcohol um, drugs. So w- over the years, we've done quite a bit of different groups. Um, but just getting into one is important, uh, you know, and if your church doesn't have that group, maybe find something that's part of the church community in town. Um, yeah. You can go, just so you know, you can usually sometimes connect with like a family life radio or something like that, and they might be able to point you to the different groups that go on. They sometimes will have a kind of calendar of different uh, things that go on. Mm. Yeah, you know? for women as well, not just not right. just men. We have that's right uh, purity for women groups that's right. as well, which is yes, we cool. do. believe it or not, also sin. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's right. Some, some. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, great, great topic to discuss, and you're not alone, which is yes, very important to know. Absolutely, you're not. You will alone, go to no. a group and realize, oh, I'm not the only one that struggles with sin and maybe specific sins as well. Yeah. Um, uh, Taylor has a, a great question. What kind of water is baptism water? Is it mm. holy water? Is it special kind That's of water? That's a cool question yeah. because it's water. Yeah, but you know, me growing up, okay, like uh, I grew up without any understanding of this absolutely none yeah okay so no joke when you don't have a knowledge of church world i thought it was special water yeah i i did you know how you make holy water no you boil the hell out of it (laughs) what a joke that's a good one now everybody's going to be saying that one yeah right I'm yeah. sure they've been saying it since 2000. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, my background, yeah, that was that was kind of I thought it was like special, like had yeah. some kind of thing. Well, you would, you would think it was <clears throat> special. Yeah, so, I mean, holy water. And... I mean, I mean, I mean, that's the one the Pope uses. I mean, that's yeah. got to be amazing. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. It wasn't until later on in in life that I kind of figured out that oh, that was just 
you know, regular water. Right. You know, it's just blessed or, you know, um, a, a prayer is said probably <laughs> over yeah. it, you know. I mean, it, do we even do that here when we baptize? If we pray uh, we over the pray not for that over reason. The yeah. 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 We don't pray. Um, yeah, that's a good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe I should lay hands on like water. It's like the dilemma of bottled water. Is it <laughs> safe to drink water out of the hose, or do you only drink the bottled water? Well, you go down to the bottled water factory, and guess what they're filling it up with? <laughs> with the hose. Yeah. With the hose. So <laughs> yeah. there, was, no, there was a part, though, in the Gospels where Jesus, uh, the pool of what, Siloam, was it? Uh, one of the pools that had this uh, kind of stirring that would take place in it. You but, it, yeah, John 5, it was, the, it was a superstitious belief, not one he affirmed, right. but they believed they'd be healed because of this shenaniganry that was going on with it. Yeah, so that, that that's kind of what it reminds me of anyway, of like special water is that kind of a, a narrative, you know. Was that John 5? Yeah, John 5, okay. 4 is a controversial one because the explanation that the angel came down to stir it isn't in a lot of early manuscripts. Some think that that was a scribal note, but huh. yeah. um, back to the topic, the actual concept of holy water, and there is such a thing, is actually in the book of Leviticus where they would mix the ashes of a heifer, I'll explain that in a second, into the water, and then when they would dedicate something to the Lord, they'd sprinkle it in this special cup of holy water or set-aside water, something that was set aside for a different purpose. Now, the water was still water, but it had the ashes of a heifer in it. Now, what's a heifer? Well, it was a very, very specific kind of cow that would be offered in dedication of the tabernacle and later the temple. Mm -hmm. And whenever they would rededicate the temple on generally a yearly basis, they would mix in the new heifer's ashes with the first heifer's ashes. And there's, of course, the law of the conservation of matter, maybe one or two ashes are still there from the first one that was sacrificed. That was the mindset. But whenever they would have these collections of ashes, they would mix it in with the water and then use that water as a ceremonial dedication of something. Now, in practical purposes, it was just water with a few little flakes inside of it. It wasn't anything supernatural, let's say that. Mm. But as far as the nature of it, it was significant because it was a reminder, a tie back to the work that God had been doing throughout the ages. That was what it was intended to be for Israel. That's where holy water comes from. As far as what the Catholics are doing, I don't know. But the idea of that comes from Leviticus. It was something the priests of Israel did during the time of the temple sacrifices for that reason. As far as the significance of baptism and baptismal water, um, understand that even physical water, it's downplayed by the Apostle Paul through inspiration of the Holy Spirit on several occasions. For example, 1 Corinthians 1, he goes out of his way to say, I didn't come to baptize you, I came to preach the gospel. And people who would argue, well, baptism is what saves you. Yeah, baptism in what? Not the water, that is the removal of the flesh, quoting the Holy Spirit again, but what? the immersion in fire, yeah. as John the Baptist described it. Now, that might produce some weird mental images for you. <laughs> we but should do that's, that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm game. <laughs> but uh, the idea, well, we live in Arizona, so just step outside. The idea, though, was that. It was the presence of God. Our God is a consuming fire, referencing the prophet Isaiah, and later quoted in the book of Hebrews. So if the presence of God, obviously not Jesus' physical body, Obviously not the Father leaving heavenly glory, but what? 
the Spirit. We're immersed. That's what baptism, mikvah, as you said, means, yeah. the Spirit. Mm-hmm. That salvation, being filled with the Spirit, being immersed in the Spirit, is our baptism that saves us. As far as water is concerned, remember that when Jesus was baptized by his cousin um, John, he said, I ought to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me. And Jesus said, Permit it to be so now, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And what does righteousness mean? So someone in a right relationship with God, someone who's doing the right things. Now, Jesus obviously didn't need to be saved from his sin. So what was he getting baptized for? He was doing the right thing. He was dedicating himself to God ceremonially. That's what mm-hmm. baptism or mikvah was. So when we get water baptized, the intent needs to be certain. We're not doing that to get saved, to remove our saved subscription or anything like that. We're doing something that's modeled after the character of God. When Jesus lived a life that was perfect, it included that. So we should be doing that too, (laughs) whenever and however we can, but with the same intent. For example, in my own life, I obviously got baptized after I was saved, after I'd received a personal relationship with Jesus by my Father, but I got baptized at another time as well, and it was when I started volunteering in the student ministry. When Jesus left aside his life as a carpenter and would now begin his work as the Messiah, I thought about that and looked at other examples historically and thought, well, I'm kind of ending my time as a college student and a disgraced one at that, and I'm entering into someone who's in the ministry. So, well, and I dedicate myself to God in that sense, and no one argued, so I assumed that it was right. But that's the mindset. So uh, if you're baptized in holy water, I feel sorry for the cow because that would be a lot of sprinkled ashes. If you're being baptized in just regular water, understand that it's a ceremonial dedication of yourself to God. It doesn't have to be special water, just a special intent with regular water. And then, of course, if you're saying, well, where is the concept of holy water? It's, it's an Old Testament thing. It's involving the tabernacle and eventually the temple. Yeah, and think of all the kinds of water people have been baptized in over the years, right? Uh, you know, different, I mean, ocean water. I mean, if yep. you're in California, that means it's probably oil filled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know? It stays with you. For, yeah, it stays with you, for on you forever. <laughs> um, Taken off with a cloth. Yeah. Yeah. And I've heard the Jordan's not a very, uh, you know, the amazing <laughs> clean, yeah, yeah. clean, clean river. Uh, um, so yeah, but people have, been baptized all over the place, all different kinds of actual water, you know. Right. Yeah. Right. But is that symbol? Similarly to communion, the communion elements, right? It's not actually Jesus' body and blood. It's just a symbol of You hear that? That, yeah. Yeah. Or like, or like what, you know, is it like, what kind of wine are you using during Grape juice around here, yeah. But, you know, well, we're using the vintage from, you know, (coughs) 18. It has to be divisible by seven or something. Well, she's best. But it's a, it, it is a question that people probably ask, like, hey, what kind of wine is used at communion or what kind of, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, depending on what background they, yeah, they what come background from. Yeah, what background they come from. And again, that, those, delief, those beliefs differ. Uh, people do believe it becomes the blood, and that's why the priest has to finish the cup because you don't just throw away Jesus' blood, right. those kind of things. But right. And we don't believe that, and the Bible doesn't either. Yeah. That's right. Well, I've got time for at least one more question uh, from Robert. Hello, brothers. Hello to you as well, Robert. Thanks for being part of the show. So my question is on repentance. What is it really and what is it not? 
Is it a work or is it a reaction to the conviction of the Holy Spirit? What is repentance, biblical repentance? Mm. For about two and a half minutes. Um, the Greek words metanoia just means to turn around. It was generally used in a military sense, like about face. You're heading one direction, you go the other. Uh, in a moral sense, it's generally what we define as a change of mind that produces a change of heart, that produces a change of life. So if you're repenting, um, I think it was uh, Spurgeon who said, birds fly, fish swim, and Christians repent. Mm. It's not something that you do one and done. It's a daily readjusting of your attitude mm. in the same way that a plane is constantly trying to stay on course with a intended trajectory. So all big words aside, it's just that. In a moral sense, you're looking to this world to meet a need that only God can, and you're turning around from not God to God. And the fact that we do that on a daily basis will obviously demonstrate that we're not doing it to be saved or in order to stay saved, but it's the action of someone who is saved. If mm -hmm. Jesus had to do all of that to get me out of the ultimate consequences of this, how can I who died to sin live any longer in it, a la Romans 6.1? So yeah. the mindset is a new perspective on sin, a new adopted intention towards how you're living your life. Yeah. If I'm, and this is the question as to what it is and what it isn't, going to say, I'm going to stop doing this, that wouldn't be repentance. That would be a commitment or a personal sacrifice, one that we never keep. But if, on the other hand, I'm going to say, as Bo mentioned earlier, I'm going to confess my sin. I'm going to say the same thing that God says about this, that that's not good. Mm. He can change my heart over time, and right. that's bearing fruits with repentance. So there is a difference, and an important one at that. Yeah, yeah. good good stuff. Yeah, any final comments? Nope. Anyone, anyone got no? No, that's good. Well, I'm going to call it the end of our show for today. Bo, thank you. Yeah. Nope. Sean, thank, thank you, you as well. Appreciate you both. Thank you for being part of the show. We had some great questions today. Let's take the question off the screen. Um, we'll be back tomorrow, same time and same place. And once again, calvarychristianfellowship.com if you'd like any more information about Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson. Uh, or shoot us an email, questionsforhope at gmail.com. And be well. See you again tomorrow. God bless you guys. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.